we consider that most blessed passage in chapter 1, verse 9, in our Bible lessons from the first epistle to John. There we read, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here we have the forgiveness of sin and cleansing through confession. In this verse, we have clearly defined the unalterable condition of forgiveness on man's part, the blessed cleansing from sin and its defilements of the preceding passage of the walking in the light, verse 7, is not automatic. You recall there we read, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. To walk in the light is to walk in openness before God, accepting the scrutiny of the Holy Spirit upon our lives. This will bring to light actions of sin, for which we will need forgiveness and cleansing. The verse before us makes plain what must take place before this occurs. It is positively not automatic on the part of God without some activity on our part. As sins are brought to light, we must honestly acknowledge them and humbly confess them before they will be forgiven and our inner lives purified and delivered. It seems that we have been more humbled by our sins since we were saved than those before we were saved. It is because sin is not rated as the world rates sin, but sin is a transgression of light, and the holy and sweet love of God manifested within us made any sin against this love the more awful. It was so with Peter. I am sure that Peter always remembered that last mournful look of his master at his sin of unfaithfulness, and wept as never before, both at that time and often thereafter. If we are to keep on walking in the light, we must be confessing our sins as we may fall into them. Remember, there is no such thing as a Christian who has never yielded himself completely to God. This yieldedness may have been withdrawn and will have to be repeated, as indeed it has to be repeated or maintained every day and every hour. But the great battle as to who is going to control the life is not the Christians, but the sinners. This is involved in repentance, which was a turn from total selfishness to submission to God. Further, there is no such thing as a Christian who has never been humbled in the dust before God, so to speak. For this was the sinner's posture when God was moved with compassion over him. Thus, to be acknowledging our guilt in humility is not new. It was the way we entered into the fold of God. Salvation is the forgiveness of sins, or the pardoning, putting away, or passing over of our transgressions through faith in the death of Jesus. Since actions committed are the only sins, only past sins can be dealt with and put away. Anything that comes up in the future will create a new situation. 
the great Father's heart sends our sins from himself in his great mercy through our faith in Jesus and is faithful and righteous in all his dealings. If we sin again, we incur a new debt, grieving the Godhead. The first act is ours. We must turn from our sin and humbly confess to God, appealing for his mercy. There is nothing to claim by faith, as some seem to suppose. A sinner has nothing to claim. He can only plead and appeal. How sweet the words, he may forgive us our sins. But further, an inner catastrophe has again taken place, that of defilement. But the blood of Jesus is the remedy. For we read, he may cleanse us from all unrighteousness of heart and life. To all meaning of words, when a heart is thus purified by an instantaneous action, it rests in sweet purity, giving glory and thanks to the Godhead. This is salvation. How clear is the simple word of God, if we will walk in it. There may be a wholesome caution in the use of a certain mood in the Greek structure here, in these two verbs. It is the mood of contingency, and it may indicate that we must approach to God in all propriety, since we have no claim upon his mercy. We have by sin forfeited our position of mercy, and can only beseech him to bow down to us, and again restore us to himself. The child of God must thus walk humbly and carefully. There is no other walk. Salvation has brought him into a sweet fellowship with the Trinity. If he falls or stumbles into a sin, the Trinity are moved with compassion to rescue him. But if when he is reached, he would rather be left in his sin than be delivered and forgiven, an indignancy arises in the minds of the Godhead, and his relationship of sonship is strained. He is in danger of being reprobated forever, but yet the love of God yearns to bring him back. The one way back is by confession and forgiveness. There is no other pathway. We should comment further about two aspects of the nature of God as revealed in this verse. We have the expression, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. A great deal of meaning is attached to the words faithful and just. By saying that God is faithful to forgive, we have emphasized the compassion and overabounding mercy of God. God in great love overcomes his natural reluctance to forgive, and his righteous indignation towards sinners who have brought untold sorrow to his existence, and is disposed to pardon sin whenever possible consistent with other obligations. This is an unspeakably blessed feature in the Godhead to contemplate. God is totally unlike us. We are vindictive toward those who have injured us and are naturally restless until we think that retribution has been exercised toward them. This is selfishness in action, 
thinking primarily of our own injury. God, on the other hand, we read, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son to be its Savior. The death of Christ did not render God merciful and willing to forgive. God's love and mercy was the moving force of the whole procedure. The Bible again and again conveys the impression that it is the easy and delightful thing for God to forgive repentant sinners and the hard thing to send judgment upon his moral creatures. Over 20 different words are used in the Bible to declare the mercy and kindness of God in some 225 different passages that have been collected. God is good, we read, kind, merciful, gracious, compassionate, long-suffering, patient, and the like. God spoke through Isaiah these tender words, as recorded in 54, 8, With everlasting kindness will I have mercy upon thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. Many scriptures set forth this inner disposition of kindness in the Godhead, which affects all their actions. In Psalm 86, 5 we read, For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive, and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. In James 5.11 we read, The Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. God is deeply affected with man's sin and is very reluctant to send judgment and punishment for sin. Therefore, although we read in Psalm 7.11 that God is angry with the wicked every day, we read also in Lamentation 3.22, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. In Romans 2.4 we read that it is the goodness of God that leadeth thee to repentance. Men can brace themselves against judgment, but the love and patience of God breaks sinners down. We read in 2 Peter 3.9 that God is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come for repentance. It is thus the will of God that every single individual should be saved. Then again the Bible presents the happy record that many have been pardoned freely by the great mercy of God through repentance and faith. In Romans 5.20 we read, Where sin aboundeth, grace did much more abound. Thus we see that the loving kindness and great compassion of God is the profound moving force in the forgiveness of sinners. How delightful to contemplate the nature of God as revealed in the Bible. The other profound revelation of the problems of mercy in the being of God is embodied in the term just. What God would like to do because of his unbounding mercy, he is hindered from doing because of other considerations. There are relations of moral beings to be sustained in all of God's actions. To exercise mercy to repentant sinners just because he was disposed to be compassionate without regard to the other factors entering into the welfare of his moral creatures 
would be to act unintelligently and therefore sinful. Since God, because of uninterrupted virtuous love, will act in perfect righteousness toward all considerations in the forgiveness of repentant sinners, the great measure of the advent and atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus became a dreadful necessity. We shall deal more particularly with this profound aspect of the exercise of God's mercy as we come to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. How wonderful is the invitation. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To cover our sins is only to deceive ourselves and bring eternal ruin upon our future lives. Oh, that many might heed to these precious invitations. Our Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the picture of thy loving, forgiving being as revealed in the Bible. How we pray that many may be moved with thy compassion and may also consider thy righteousness and turn from sin and through faith in the death of Christ be reconciled to thee. In Jesus' name, amen.